Happy Monday, boys and girls. Tyler Cobble coming at you live with this week's Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update for the podcast, where we're covering the world of news in commercial real estate, which uh, last I checked, nobody else seems to be doing, which is why we enjoy doing it around here. It's been a crazy week at, uh, at our offices. We ended up closing on a 50-key hotel right down the street from my office, actually, uh, which I'm really excited about. It's our first hospitality venture. Uh, we are also starting a hospitality company to manage that. We're building another 80-key hotel, starting a bar, starting a restaurant. So we figured, you know what, we might as well uh, get the correct systems in place to properly manage all of this. So really excited about that at Salt Ranch. Um, my investors and I closed on it, like I said, I think last Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So just going through the takeover of that this past week, which has been a lot of fun. Really excited for what we've got going on there. It's going to be the first mid-luxury hotel uh, in East Nashville. And I'm actually going to be talking about it here um, in a minute in uh, the, the Nashville market news. This weekend was also pretty interesting. We had the, oh, what was it? The Grand Prix. The Indy, uh, Indy car race was in Nashville this weekend, which, uh, which is kind of crazy for how big Nashville is. It's, it's, it's really cool to me to see how much Nashville has just grown up since I was a kid. I mean, you would not have ever expected Nashville to have an IndyCar race. I remember driving, flying up to Indianapolis to go to the Indy 500 and watching it up there, uh, which was really, really cool. Um, but never really thought that Nashville would have something like that. And here we are. So pretty cool. Pretty good weekend in Nashville. And uh, that's a perfect segue into the Nashville market. Let's see what we got going on this week in Nashville. This first article is from the Tennessean. Pinnacle invests $10 million in programs supporting affordable home ownership through shared equity. Love that. Nashville has had a pretty serious uh, uptick in the just, I guess, the median home price. I mean, I want to say like five years ago, it was around $250,000. Now we're well over $350,000, and that doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. I saw a house get listed in East Nashville. New construction uh, last night for $436 a foot. I mean, $1.8 million house. And look, I, I love pushing the boundary as much as the next guy, but it's tough for me to see how that house is worth that when, you know, a couple years ago it would have sold in the high 200s, low 300s per square foot. So we'll be interesting to see if that happens. But because of that, we're starting to see it. We're, we're starting to experience an affordability crisis in home ownership in Middle Tennessee. So, Great to see that the um, that there are groups like Pinnacle stepping up to invest in that program. Uh, Dave is asking, what was the attendance for the Nashville race? Dave, I'm not sure, uh, but it was packed, man. It was really cool uh, going down there and, and, and watching that. I actually didn't get tickets. I really should have gotten tickets. I didn't think of it until last minute. Uh, but it was really neat uh, going down there. We got um, not seats, I guess, because we were standing, but – we found a spot at two of the turns and just watched the cars as they came around. And then we went to the bars afterwards, grabbed a drink, and, and watched it on TV. You could obviously see a lot more of the race, which was pretty neat. So, yeah, it was a really cool experience. I, I feel like if they did that in Nashville every year, it would sell out. Um, Nashville is just one of those cities where people love going out and having really cool experiences like that. All right, getting back into this. So, uh, love this. Is talking about Ed Henley, who is a he's a local developer here in Nashville, and he has uh, he's taken off in the past few years. Been been really exciting to watch what he's been doing. 
says Ed Henley was a 23-year-old with uh, student loan debt when he became a Nashville homeowner with assistance from the Housing Fund's Shared Equity Program in 2013. Eight years later, Henley still lives in the same house. He said the financial stability afforded by his reasonable monthly mortgage payment allowed him to found and grow his own Nashville development company. The Shared Equity Program is now launching a second phase funded by $10 million of investment from Pinnacle Financial Partners, which is a very large local bank here. Um, I want to say they, they got started maybe 20 years ago, and now they've acquired several other banks, many other banks, and they've grown very quickly. The money will provide home loans to low- and moderate-income home buyers in Nashville and Middle Tennessee. Uh, looks like Henley is living proof of how effective and enabling something like that can be for an individual. So the opportunity for the housing fund to roll that out and the number of home ownership opportunities that that investment facilitates could easily be in the hundreds. Um, pretty cool. He's also uh, He was also co-chair on Nashville's uh, Affordable Housing Task Force. Looks like the housing fund requires homeowners, uh, home buyers, to provide 1% of the purchase price. Uh, the program com- contributes a 25% down payment. So if you're not very familiar with, with buying homes or putting down payments down, uh, that is significantly cheaper than what it typically is. Even even the FHA loans, I believe, are 3 or 3.5% three down. And if you're not a first-time home buyer, you're probably going to be in that 10 to 20% range. So being able to put 1% of the purchase price down, I mean, think about that. The, the median house in Nashville is $350,000. You only have to put $3,500 down um, to buy a house and move your family into, which, which is just awesome. Pinnacle provides a loan for the remaining 74% of the home's price, creating a reasonable monthly mortgage payment and allowing buyers to build equity without extra costs such as mortgage insurance. That's one of the biggest downsides to having – I want to say it's under 15% or maybe under 20% down payment is that you have to buy mortgage insurance, which just increases your monthly payment. Uh, If and when a program participant decides to sell their home, they must sell to another low to moderate income buyer who qualifies for the program. So again, it's kind of keeping that, you know, affordability in the family. I love that. The housing fund recoups its 25% down payment with no interest and any appreciation in the home's value is split between the homeowner and the housing fund, which reinvests the money it gains back into the program. Uh, I believe Marshall Crawford is still uh, running the housing fund here in Nashville. Uh, yes, it, he is. It's, it mentions him here. Marshall's a great guy. They've been doing such a wonderful job over there and growing significantly. I believe Amazon just gave some money to the housing fund so they could continue to help uh, with this program here in Nashville. We are ensuring the long-term affordability of these particular units, and now we're not losing the battle of supply and demand around affordable housing, said Marshall Crawford, president and CEO of the Housing Fund. The shared equity program has helped a total of 45 individuals and families purchase homes in the Nashville area since the start since it started in 2011. Crawford said it aims to increase that total to 100 homeowners through the new investment. Second phase of the program is broader, allowing the Housing Fund to review home prices and individuals on a case-by-case basis without restricting location choices. That's awesome. Um, it looks like they want to get into more community people from communities with historically low home ownership rates, including African-American and Latino residents, uh, so that they can utilize the program to build wealth. I mean, it's, it's, it's no secret that home ownership, especially for those typically lower home ownership percentage communities, is a great way to build wealth and, and help break that chain. 
I love what the housing fund is doing. Love that Pinnacle's gotten involved in it. It's really cool seeing, you know, Nashville darlings out there doing this. So cheers to you guys. Appreciate what y'all are doing. This next article is from the Nashville Business Journal. Burt Matthews is betting big on going small. Let's see here. Burt Matthews knows his latest housing project isn't for everyone. Burt is a local developer. He's also a partner in uh, Collier's. Uh, his, I believe it was his father, his grandfather started a construction company. So they're very involved in Nashville's commercial real estate and real estate development scene. Martin Flats, his new four-story building at the corner of Martin and Humphreys Streets in Wedgwood, Houston, has a unique pitch. $1,000 a month for a 200-square-foot unit, fully furnished with utilities, Wi-Fi, and amenities included. There is a rapidly growing trend towards smaller yet affordable urban apartment units. And there are a lot of people that will come out and bash that. Honestly, I think he could charge more than $1,000 a month for these units. We are managing one of the only, so my, my property management company, Parasol, is managing one of the only micro unit projects in the city. Uh, it's 125 units um, over off of West Trinity Lane, so not far from East Nashville. And we're getting, I want to say $900 a month for about 230, 240 square feet. And it's, it's the same thing. Fully, uh, some of them are fully furnished. If you want them to be furnished, it's extra. But that includes utilities. It includes Wi-Fi and amenities. And uh, this isn't, that, that isn't even as good of a location as this Wedgwood Houston one is. So honestly, I'm kind of surprised that it is as cheap as they have it. Uh, but again, it's affordable. If you want to have your own space for $1,000 a month, if you worked, if you bartend downtown, you work downtown, you don't want to live out in, in the boonies, you don't want to live with roommates, it's a very affordable, solid option. The city needs all kinds of housing, the longtime National Real Estate Pro said during a walk through the property, which has finished construction and is pre-leasing. It's really a matter of giving people one more choice. That's the thing with micro units is it's just another option for people. You don't have to like them. You don't have to go rent a micro apartment unit yourself, but there is somebody out there that this is giving an opportunity to, and that's what is so exciting to me about micro units. Uh, we've proven that micro units are popular in all sectors of real estate, right? I mean, I start one of my first syndications was an office building that we turned from one 6,000-square-foot uh, office space to 12 micro offices. And we had one of those suites come up. We, I ended up selling that project, but we still manage it and lease it. We ended up having one of those units come available. They rarely come available because almost every tenant renews. Uh, and it was as soon as the tenant moved out, it was leased within two days. So, you know, typically in commercial real estate, you're not just leasing something two days after a tenant moves out. It takes a lot longer than that because they're bigger spaces. You're competing with other opportunities. So, Micro units, yeah, I mean, look, maybe they are a little bit more of a headache because they're a little more management intensive. But at the end of the day, if they lease up faster, it's you've you've just got a different program, right? It's a different offering. So that's one that's the best way to look at it. Like, don't look at micro units as just another form of multifamily. Like it's its own sector. So this type of living known as micro housing is normally found in dense coastal cities. But as Nashville grows and rents inflate, Matthews says Martin Flats could let residents dwell in a trendy neighborhood affordably as long as they're willing to give up some space. Development will have 150 units total. 
Um, some of the ground floor rooms will be slightly larger. They could double as office space. Each floor has two communal kitchens, a lounge area, and a laundry facility. Matthews is scouting tenants for the uh, for the building's bottom level retail space. Um, I actually live in Wedgwood, Houston right now, so being able to walk to Never Never, Flamingo, Bastion, the, those are some of the bars that are in the area. is pretty cool. And this is actually a very convenient location. There is walkability to it, right? So, I mean, if you wanted to buy, or I'm sorry, if you wanted to rent something for $1,000 a month in Wedgwood, Houston, you really don't actually have very many options. There are not a lot of places where you could just rent your own private space for $1,000 a month. It just doesn't exist anymore. Ultimately, when people decide to lease these tiny rooms, it comes down to what's higher on their list of priorities, urban living with limited space or a one-bedroom in the suburbs. This gives you a great place to get started, he said, but it doesn't have to be for everyone. I mean, look, if you're, if you're like me, I'll take smaller space all day because I'm hardly ever home. I'm almost always – I mean, look at it. It's 545 right now, and I'm at the office talking with you guys. So it's – home to me is a place to go rest my head. I'm not married, don't have kids – don't have pets. It's very easy for me to just take a you know tiny little space, and that's all I need. And there are a lot of people like that, right? There are a lot of millennials in the workforce that they enjoy going out. You know, it's kind of like that New York lifestyle. Like you have a tiny little shoebox of a place, but it's because you're an out enjoying the city, right? And and Nashville is finally at a point where you can really get out and do that. So, pretty neat. All right, and as I teased earlier, this one is from the Nashville Post. Boutique hotel eyed for East Nashville. Salt Ranch to operate from historic Congress Inn on Dickerson Pike. So this was the hotel that we just acquired uh, this past week. Investor group led by Nashville-based Tyler Cobble has acquired the Dickerson Pike property home to the Congress Inn for $3 million. Um, let's see. Cobble, founder of the Cobble Group in Hamilton Development, will team up with Red Rover Hospitality to reinvent the buildings as a boutique hotel called Salt Ranch with a summer 2022 opening. Uh, this is really exciting. So we're obviously founding a hospitality company, as I said, Red Rover Hospitality. We're partnering with Jordan Fife on that, who is a world-renowned hotelier. He has um, the number one hotel on the Condé Nast Travelers list for like the last four years out in Palm Springs that he did. Um, that was called Verizon. He also did Sparrow Lodge. He's been in hospitality forever. So really excited to be partnering with him on this venture. This will definitely not be the last hotel that we're doing. We are looking for multiple others. Um, let's see. Congress Inn will offer 52 rooms. Um, the site used to uh, feature a swimming pool and a restaurant, um, which they actually they like paved over the pool. They haven't had a restaurant in years, so we're bringing all of that back. Um, the site, the new side plane is really cool. It's, I mean, it's going to be this like retreat. We're going up with taller fencing, higher hedging. Um, we'll have a wedding and event venue stage, um, on the property. So it's, uh, pretty exciting what we've got going on there. I mean, Jordan's just got a, a brilliant, a brilliant mind for this stuff. We've also retained Beverage Road Architecture, which is one of my favorite architects in town, um, to do this project. They've done a lot of stuff with us in East Nashville. They'll be handling the design furnishings and the ambiance to uh, we're kind of going with a, a, an authentic Nashville vibe that's one thing that I feel like boutique hotels haven't really done very well in Nashville they just I mean they slap a guitar on the wall and call it Nashville and while that's kitschy and some people may like that it's not the real Nashville you know the Nashville that I grew up with is this it was kind of you know not super modern but like a modern rustic country feel 
Like you could still go out to your friend's house and they had a bunch of acreage. And, you know, sometimes we'd have bonfires, but also like we'd hang out at a buddy's place and, you know, walk down to restaurants. Like it's, it, that was, that's kind of the vibe that Nashville has always had. So I think that that's really cool. And that's the Nashville that I want to continue to preserve and celebrate as Nashville evolves. Right. I think that's very important to keep in mind as a developer. Um, let's see here. It's kind of weird to read a quote that you quoted yourself, but, um, Jordan five red Rover hospitality company, managing partner and founder said all elements of the property will be designed to promote interactions between hotel staff and guests to emphasize that feeling that right here, you are home. Very important to us that locals and tourists alike, um, kind of interact with each other, creating that, you know, Southern home hospitality feel. All right, let's move on to Market Watch. This week, we are diving into emerging. We're diving into the emerging trends in real estate from ULI with Chicago. Let's see, Chicago is forty-four in terms of overall real estate prospects. So about you know, midway on the list. There's about eighty cities that they took into account on this list. So not the highest we've covered. Definitely not the lowest. Uh, I can't remember who we covered last week, but it was pretty low on the West. I believe it was, gosh, I can't even remember who it was now. Oh, I think it might have been San Francisco. Uh, in terms of home building prospects, Chicago is 70 on the West, almost towards the absolute bottom. So 70 out of 80. Uh, so just so you know, Chicago is part of what ULI determines to be the establishment cities. Uh, in a multi-talented metro area. They combine it or they, they class it along with Boston, Los Angeles, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Philadelphia. In terms of overall investor demand, they are a 3.17 out of 5. That's actually higher than I would have expected considering where Chicago is, but very few on this list are even below a 2.5. So, you know, that's they're definitely in the bottom 50% of demand. Uh, let's dive into this next article from Roofstock uh, to figure out why. Why investors are considering Chicago's real estate market in 2021. Median home sales prices in Chicago are projected to keep rising in 2021 as the demand for housing in metropolitan Chicago exceeds supply. That's really surprising. As many people as there are moving to Nashville from Chicago I'm just trying to think of like where in the country you would be moving from headed to Chicago to where Chicago would be better. I mean, I was there a few months ago and it was rough. I mean, COVID has had a really pretty profound impact on Chicago. There were a number of restaurants that were closed. A lot of them were permanently closed. I want to hear, I heard some, some statistic that was like 20% of their restaurant stock permanently closed. That sounds crazy to me, but it's just something I heard. Don't quote me. Both the city and the suburbs are seeing growing demand with inventory down to historically low levels. Investing in rental property in Chicago could be a smart move this year with more households in Chicago renting instead of owning. Gateway real estate markets like Chicago are an elite group of powerhouse U.S. cities with high liquidity, large economies, influential culture, and international brand recognition. Uh, let's see. Let's dive into the population growth. Chicago is home to nearly 2.7 million people in the city and more than 9.4 million residents in the metro area. Their population declined by 0.38% last year. That's pretty significant. 
I mean, for you to not even just break even, like I know it's 0.38% is almost break even, but that's really, really low. Abby is saying potentially some other smaller Midwest areas mining, migrating to Chicagoland area. Yeah, you're probably right, right? Like all of those smaller towns um, kind of in the Midwest are saying, hey, let's just get to the city. Um, I could see that. Chicago is the most populous city in Illinois and the third most populous metropolitan area in the U.S. Uh, the median age in Chicago is 38 years with 41% of the population between the ages of 20 and 49. Per capita income in Chicago is $40,144 and median household income is $75,379. That's actually not bad. That's a pretty high median household income. I mean, for the whole city. Right? Like I think if you took Nashville, it's got to be 40 or 50. So that's pretty good. Job market. Chicago is a major world financial center and home to the second largest central business district in the U.S. Over the next 30 years, employment growth in Metro, uh, Metro Chicago is projected to be just below the 5 million mark, adding about 200,000 new jobs. Let's see. GDP is nearly $709 billion, which has grown by 42% in the last 10 years. That is actually very significant. I mean, 42% in 10 years. That's crazy. Over $300 billion in growth. Employment growth is 1.14% year over year with the metro area home to nearly 4.8 million employees. Now, look, that may seem on the surface that like it's a positive number, but let's keep in mind that last year was 2020. What was the, I mean, last year was terrible. So 1.14% year over year is really not that great. Median household incomes in Chicago grew by 3.45% year-over-year, while median property values increased 3.12% over the past 12 months. Now, that is interesting. Despite the pandemic, median property values have increased by over 3%. I mean, what is the historic average over like 20 or 30 years is 3%, so 3 to 5. So that's actually pretty decent. Unemployment rate in Chicago is currently 7.9%. With construction, manufacturing, trade and transportation, information technology, and financial activities sectors showing the fastest signs of growth. Okay, uh, how's the real estate market? Let's see. Zillow Home Value Index. However much weight you want to give that, I'd give it almost no weight. For Chicago is $293,000 through May of 2021. Home values in Chicago increased 9.4% last year. That's crazy. Over the last five years, home values in Chicago increased by over 24%. So, I mean, they're, you know, averaging about 5% a year. Median listing price of a single-family home in Chicago is $347,000 based on the most recent report. So, that's crazy, not far off from Nashville. And days on market, 65. I mean, okay, it looks like it's a strong renter's market, which is good to see. I mean, that's probably all we're really going to get out of that out of that article uh, okay here's another one from real estate uh at dot usnews.com seven chicago real estate trends to know the windy city is seeing rising home prices and tough buyer competition but you may find what you're looking for at lower costs compared to other major metro areas i mean look if you are comparing shot uh, chicago to san francisco new york city uh, yeah you're probably going to be getting a better deal um, just because it's it's not quite as overall resistant, maybe, as, as New York and San Francisco are. 
you know, like you think about how COVID hit those cities, like, I mean, San Francisco is not just going to disappear, right? New York City is not just going to disappear. I mean, yeah, of course, they, they got hit really hard by COVID, but it's they're going to come back. Whether you were born and bred in Chicago or are moving to the third most populous city in the U.S. for the first time, know that the housing market both echoes national trends and deviates from them. Okay, so that's <laughs> that sentence effectively said nothing. This place is the same and different from everywhere else. <laughs> okay. Chicago's neighborhoods range dramatically from the densely populated urban core to quiet residential streets, from shopping districts to hubs largely populated by college students. Okay, cool. Prices are rising, but not unsteadily. The median home price for the Chicago metropolitan statistical area was 270 in February, a 12.5% increase from February of 2020. For the entire state of Illinois, the median home price was lower at 226000 a 14.1% increase compared to the prior February. So, I mean, obviously you would expect homes in Chicago to be worth a little bit more. Fewer homes were sold in February compared to the year before. A contributing factor to both fewer sales and rising prices is the inventory of homes on the market is currently very low. As many homeowners aren't interested in selling now and the construction of new homes isn't keeping up with the number of new buyers on the market, which is just crazy how that's going on everywhere in the country. I mean, it's just new construction cannot keep up uh, whatsoever. I mean, also, it takes, you know, six months to build a house. So let's see. Still going to coach my sellers to price the property appropriately, one realtor says. Outside of downtown, buyer competition is fierce. High-rise buildings are seeing more vacancies. Square footage and outdoor space are driving sales. Renewed interest in dense city living hinges city living living city living hinges on entertainment. And if you're considering the suburbs, look for small downtowns. People from pricier metros see Chicago as ideal for investment. That's interesting. So I mean, look, it's it's kind of a you know I guess a good marrying of what you would expect to see from kind of these bigger cities, but also smaller cities like Nashville, where, you know, it's, it's the same, but it's different from everything else. I mean, you know, what Chicago is, uh, there's probably an opportunity there right now. It looks like some of the high rises are struggling, but maybe single family homes are doing well. So if you're into high rise investments, maybe that's the place to look. Moving on to the future of commercial real estate. Let's see what we got this week. Coming at you from Globestreet.com, lawsuits greet Biden's latest attempt at an eviction ban. Industry groups worry that many landlords can't keep waiting for rent. This is going to get into a very political area, so I'm going to try and be careful. But the, you can't just keep allowing renters to not pay and then not give some sort of aid to landlords. Like, it, it banks aren't just going to landlords and saying, hey, don't worry, you don't need to pay next month because your tenant's not paying. It's just not how it works. So that's been the biggest issue. And also, you look at a city like Nashville where we're completely back to it. I mean, there's more jobs than there are people looking for jobs in this city. That's crazy to me. Uh, I was down on Broadway yesterday for the race, and I, it's just unbelievable how packed it was. Unbelievable. Um. So, yeah, I mean, I, I fully support these lawsuits because you, you just you can't keep telling people they don't have to pay rent. Landlords don't get breaks. 
Under direction from the Biden administration, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced a new temporary eviction moratorium into place on Tuesday, August 3rd. By the morning of August 5th, real estate and landlord groups filed lawsuits challenging the illegality of the move, according to a complaint filed by the National Apartment Association, Darby Development Company, GWR Management, McLean Investments, and Shander International. Good. As a result of the CDC order and their consequent inability to exercise their constitutional property rights and contractual rights, property owners in the United States have suffered enormous economic consequences. Without limitation, while continuing to incur all costs of ownership, they have been unable to evict non-rent-paying tenants from rental units and to generate income by leasing those units to rent-paying tenants. The CDC order has appropriated the owner's rights to exclude. Estimated financial losses industry-wide amount to tens of billions of dollars. Not all evictions have been prevented. Uh, according to real estate lawyers who have spoken over time to Globestreet.com, the moratorium requires renters to have filled out a declaration and to have met a number of conditions, but many tenants have gained protection from the moratorium, which costs the associated landlord's income. Small landlords, particularly those of owner-occupied two flats and three flats, are a long-established source of affordable housing in otherwise prohibitively expensive markets. Those, these landlords often rely on rental income from their tenants to make ends meet and are facing difficult conflicts with scared tenants who live in a neighboring unit, haven't paid rent for many months, and simply don't answer the door anymore. We're likely to see increased foreclosures among owner-occupied rental properties if small landlords don't receive targeted assistance quickly. Look, if that doesn't tell you why investing in commercial real estate is may have more advantages than investing in multifamily. I don't know what will. I mean, that's one thing that's always scared me off from from buying apartment units. That's why we've always done commercial real estate. I mean, I can deny a tenant because I don't I just wake up one day and I don't like their business. Like you can't really do that in multifamily. Um, you know, if 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 you think a tenant is on drugs or whatever, like there, there's such a crazy. Pro- I don't even know the whole process because I've tried not. I've intentionally tried not to learn it. But you have to. There's so much fair housing um, laws and things that you have to navigate. You got to be really careful with it. Um, so you know, in commercial real estate, there are no eviction protections. Like the the only eviction protection that there was was when the eviction courts were closed. Well, now there's no protections for commercial real estate. So if you're not paying rent, you're going to get evicted. And it's been that way, at least for a while. But look, we've got a portfolio of over 550,000 square feet, and we had zero evictions during COVID. And like over 95 or 96% rent collections with the other, you know, few small percentage being like, we're just working with the tenants to get everything figured out. We jumped on it from day one. And helped them. I mean, there were so many government programs that helped pay for all that stuff. Now that may be different, right? For maybe there were not government programs for renters saying, Hey, here's your money. But well, that's not true. I mean, there were people that got checks. I don't know. Uh, look, it, to me, it seems like it's pretty cut and dry, but the administration has said an extension is necessary to deliver more of the aid that arguably should have already been provided. The administration could appeal an existing district court order to immediately enforce an end to the moratorium, but because the Supreme Court has already ruled that the necessary congressional authorization is lacking, those appeals would almost certainly be futile. Um, 
Yeah. So I guess keep an eye out for what's going to go on in the world of multifamily. If your renters are paying rent, take care of them because they are clearly good people. All right. Next one. Moving on to an article from Biz Now. Office occupancy falters with rise of Delta variant. The average number of workers actually working in offices across 10 major U.S. metro markets took a dip in late July after rising steadily earlier in the month. This has been wild to me. I've noticed just going places in Nashville now, people are starting to require masks again. Um, there are fewer people that are going to meetups. I mean, it's just, I guess, you know, we're falling back into it. There's a lot of people that don't want to get the vaccine, and um, they're also not wearing masks, and so you just you don't get herd immunity, right? I mean, all right, also, don't send me hate mail about vaccines and masks. I don't care what your opinion is either way. <laughs> Make that very clear. Uh, on July 28th, the company calculated that the 10-city average occupancy dropped to 34.3%, compared with 34.8% the week before. Okay, let's be very clear. This is a very, very small decrease. On July 14th, occupancy came in at 34.5%. Uh, from July 7th, when it was 31%. Whatever. I mean, that's, that's not a significant decline. It's a decline, sure, but it's not a significant decline. The late July decline correlates with rising coronavirus infection rates among unvaccinated people and the CDC, CDC's change in its mask policy recommendations, both highly publicized events toward the end of the month. Yeah, I think the CDC started requiring or at least recommending masks again. And there's a lot of people that just don't want to bother with wearing masks. The metro with the largest drop was Austin, Texas, down just more down more than two percentage points to an occupancy rate of 51.4 percent. Houston, number two for occupancy, dropped 0.9 percentage points to 50.7 percent. That's a that's actually wild to think about that the, the occupancy is 50 percent. Um, it'd be interesting to know if this is total square footage of, of office space or if this is a percentage of the already leased and occupied space. Those are two very different numbers. Um, it could be very interesting to know. Let's see. Financial services industry is also sticking with its plans to have employees come back to the office in August and September despite the aggressive Delta variant. Wells Fargo has plans for a phased return to office for its U.S. employees that will begin in September, and so far it hasn't reversed its position. If you're a business owner, I mean, that's something that you're obviously going to want to start looking into again. I personally had some members of my team ask me how we were going to handle this. If the shutdowns pick back up again, that's a conversation that we'll just have as a team. I mean, look, if everybody's gotten vaccinated and everybody knows what we're doing, then, you know, keep coming into the office doesn't matter. If you're uncomfortable, stay home. Um, you know, it's, it's just the same as how we kind of handled it the first go round. I had everybody working from home when, we fir when it first hit. And by June, the whole team was asking me when they could get back in the office because everybody was so tired of working from home. So, you know, I guess to each their own, we'll see um, kind of where this goes. Moving on, moving on, this next one from the Wall Street Journal. American Dream, a giant mall outside Manhattan, aims to ride luxury wave. High-end shopping wing is poised to open in September as pandemic-weary consumers look to indulge. American Dream Mall in East Rutherford, New Jersey, reopened October 1st after being closed for six months due to the pandemic. 
The long-delayed project was open for less than a year before COVID-19 lockdowns forced it to shut its doors. That's got to be painful. I mean, being in retail and being only able to be open for a year before just absolute shutdowns. Ooh, the sprawling shopping mall and entertainment center called American Dream is opening its luxury retail wing next month. A sign of budding momentum for the suburban New Jersey complex after a run of early setbacks. The mall's high-end shopping area is poised to open September 17th, according to the Triple Five Group, the Canadian real estate firm that developed the complex. It will boast many of the world's premier luxury brands, including Hermes, Tiffany & Co., Dolce & Gabbana, and Saks Fifth Avenue department store. Shoppers can dine at the Luxury Wings Italian restaurant, Carpaccio, which has been a popular dining spot at Miami's Bow Harbor Shops, or sip champagne at the Brute Bar. Wow, sounds so fancy. I bet I would just fit in so well. The new wing is important to American Dream because luxury goods retailers reported a recovery in sales starting late last year from shoppers eager to spoil themselves or friends after the pandemic-related lockdowns. Let's see. Yeah, Dave is saying American Dream is owned by Triple Five, and they have deep pockets. I bet they do. They, I mean, if, if your name is just like Triple Anything, like Triple Five, like that just sounds like you've got a lot of money. I, there's some other group too. It's like triple something or, or double something. It's a really big real estate investment firm. Uh, it's the most, the American dream is the most expensive U S mall ever built at around $6 billion lies just across the Hudson river from Manhattan, uh, or lies across the Hudson river from Manhattan in East Rutherford, New Jersey. That's wild. $6 billion. For one mall, I mean, obviously, it's got to be a giant mall. This article doesn't say how big the mall really is, but that's great. I mean, look, you know, the the luxury sector of the market took, uh, I guess, a surprising lack of dip. I don't really know how else to phrase that. Like, it just doesn't seem like the luxury sector was really impacted by COVID. Um, you know, people kept spending money. And so, you know, good to see that this is reopening again. I think, again, um, retail is doing just fine. This is a clear, clear uh, sign of that. Um, so if you ever had any questions that if retail is okay, a luxury mall is opening up in New Jersey. All righty then. Let's see. Oh, wait. We're moving into private equity deal dive. <laughs> Sorry, sometimes I forget which articles are where. Okay, this one is from biznow.com. Vici Properties buying MGM growth properties for $17.2 billion, uh, which is a portfolio that includes Excalibur, Mandalay Bay, MGM Grand Las Vegas, and Luxor, all properties on the Vegas Strip. It's a pretty cool acquisition. Now, wouldn't you just love to be like a part of that? Like, yeah, my investors and I just acquired a $17.2 billion portfolio of casinos on the Vegas Strip. Like, that's baller. Under the terms of the transaction, MGM Resorts will receive about $4.4 billion in cash. MGM Growth Properties Class A shareholders will get 1.366 shares of the new Vici stock for each share that they own. 
That exchange ratio represents $43 a share for MGM Growth Properties, or about a 16% premium over its closing price on Tuesday. It would also be fascinating, oh, Davis saying, Triple Five also owns Mall of America. Not surprising, because that is also another giant mall. How cool would it be to be a fly on the wall in the room of these groups, like Avicii and MGM and their attorneys and brokers and everybody, as they negotiate this stuff? I mean, you're negotiating a $17.2 billion deal that's a 16% premium over closing price stock value. Like, how do you even land at that number? And I mean, that's that's just so fascinating to me. That's why I love doing these private equity deal dives because this is just such a next level version of real estate that most of us have a hard time really imagining. Five years ago, shares in the new REIT traded for about $26.50, rising slowly since then, except for a pandemic-inspired dip to about $16 a share in March 2020. Wouldn't you have loved to have bought that then? Through the acquisition, Vici Properties is adding to its portfolio 15 entertainment resort properties with 33,000 hotel rooms. That's crazy. 33,000 hotel rooms over 15 pro- – I mean, over 2,000 rooms a hotel. I mean, I guess it makes sense, right? It's Vegas. But still, I mean, that's – I'm doing a 50-key hotel. We're working on another 80-key hotel, and I feel like that's a lot. And, and probably the average in Nashville is like two to 300 for the bigger ones. 2,000. Amazing. 3.6 million square feet of meeting and convention space and hundreds of food, beverage, and entertainment venues. The acquisition comes at an estimated 30 to 40% discount to replacement cost. That's not bad. Not bad at all. Buying from below replacement cost is how you know it's probably a deal. Vici Properties itself is a 2017 spinoff from a larger entertainment and hospitality company, Caesars Entertainment Operating Co. The company, which takes its name from the Latin phrase, Vini Vidi Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered, uh, which I believe is a Caesar quote. I could be totally wrong. Branded itself as an experiential asset-focused REIT. Gosh, my Latin teachers would be so upset with me if they knew that I did not know who said that. The deal represents the latest move by MGM Resorts in a long-term disposition drive. In 2019, the company sold the Bellagio in Vegas to Blackstone Real Estate Income Trust and also sold Circus Circus and its stake in Freehand Hotels. Pretty huge. All right, let's get on into PropTech. You know, one thing that would be really interesting to hear back from you guys, um, since I am largely in a, sitting in a room by myself having these conversations, what sectors of the show that we do every week do y'all like? Uh, what do y'all not like or wish we were doing less? What do you wish we were doing more? And what is something that we just aren't covering that we probably should be covering? I am always open to feedback. I want this to be y'all's news show too, so that if anytime you want to just learn more about what's going on in the world of commercial real estate, we're here for you. So let me know in the comments. Uh, let me know on the live stream. If you're listening on the podcast, I don't know, shoot me an email. I would love to, I would love your feedback. Uh, this one is from Globestreet.com. Rigo Investments uses artificial intelligence for $100 million bridge loans securitization. Even modern technology needs a human eye at the end. Love that little tagline. Rigo Investments, a global investment firm based in Israel, worked working with Cancer Fitzgerald, announced the closing of $100 million bri- residential bridge loan securitization. 
According to a company release, the securitization features a 24-month revolving period, after which the transaction will begin to amortize. The pool of loans is business purpose loans, 100% senior positions with 6 to 24-month term. In addition, participation in whole loans will be included in the securitization. Uh, okay. Property types include single-family residential, multifamily, mixed-use, land, and construction loans. When we started Rigo three and a half years ago, we wanted to take data, science, and real estate and create value. I mean, look, the, I feel like we're talking about this almost every week when it comes to prop tech, but artificial intelligence is clearly the future. The amount of data that they will be able to analyze, the amount of, like, I mean, look at any single deal that we do. I mean, we're doing, the majority of, of projects that I do with my investors is typically, I say, 5 to $10 million in value. And the amount of underwriting that goes into every single one of these deals is unbelievable, right? Imagine these even bigger deals. You've got so much you've got to do. If you had artificial intelligence that was able to scan, research, data, whatever it needed to do, program all this stuff, maintain it, keep it internally, and then just you know spit out data for every project you do, that's pretty invaluable if you're a large real estate investment firm. Because you'll be able to find, you'll have a computer analyzing market trends and you'll be able to look at, figure out a trend before anybody even knows it's a trend, right? That's where you make money. During the startup phase, the company spoke with many analysts. We found out they're using the same Excel models with the same parameters that have never been changed. Hey, there's nothing wrong with Excel models. <laughs> That's exactly what we use. That would suggest that anything firms could learn about what makes good investments can't get incorporated. What RIGO does for investments is use machine learning and big data to analyze past loan decisions to build predictive systems. Working with institutional investors in both Israel and the U.S., the firm identifies hundreds of parameters and tries to correlate them with loans to determine which are likely not to default, which might default but are likely to allow recovery of money, and which could likely default and not return any investor funds. Hedging your risk. Who doesn't want to do that in their real estate investments? It's a classification problem, Omer says, referring to classic use of machine learning and putting things into fixed categories. When examining a new loan, the systems first obtain additional information about the loan, parties involved, and property from historical sources. Then the software tries to match the loan to other historical loans and their performance. The amount of work that a machine could put into that that a human just never could even come close to equaling is remarkable there are however there are inherent potential problems in machine learning which involves examining previous examples of decisions the ai program treats the examples used to train the software on what to look for as correct if those examples don't provide optimal results machine learning can provide a faster way to make the same mistakes there you go Computers are only as smart as you make them. One approach RIGO uses is to train systems on one portion of previous cases and then test the resulting decision algorithms on another portion. Almost every day we test a new model to see if it's better or not, Omer says. At some point in each month, the company reviews the model changes and then makes small incremental steps. I mean, that's, that's the story for artificial intelligence as a whole, right? It's like every day we're just making, you know, a half a percent better, 1% better. If you get 1% better every day, you will be way better by the end of the year. So 
Cool. All right, moving on to reading REITs. This one is coming at you from Seeking Alpha. Realty income is the ultimate pandemic-proof swan. It's an article from Brad Thomas. Is a quote from him. Realty income is my largest stock holding, and that's correlated to the fact that I sleep well at night. Nice. Uh, Realty income's intense quality means we don't feel compelled to wait for steep discounts. Realty income is the ultimate pandemic-proof swan. Interested to see why he thinks that. Okay. Uh, All right. Very rare that we don't have a buy rating on these shares, which might sound odd for an institution so obsessed with not overpaying. And even when we believe it's overvalued, we're following the stocks closely. Looks like their bullish stance is about quality, though that one word does break down. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Realty income works hard and smart to stay where it is. Realty income's dividend longevity hasn't happened by accident. It's produced positive year-over-year adjusted funds from operations per share growth 24 out of the last 25 years. That includes 2020, for the record. Many of its net lease peers struggled in this, and every regard due... Every regard due to their relatively lower quality or otherwise problematic retail-oriented portfolios. As such, it looks like there's no surprise that this trend continued in Q2 of 21. Uh, their per share came in at $0.88, cents, which was 2.3% higher than the $0.86 cents it generated in Q2 of 20. What's more, management raised full-year AFFO guidance from three dollars and forty-four cents to three dollars and forty-nine cents to three fifty-three to three fifty-nine. So basically, about ten cents a share. Um, interesting. So an increase in twenty twenty-one acquisition volume guidance to approximately four point five billion dollars. Continued improvement in rent collections from theater clients. Well-priced capital markets activity since the start of June that boosted its balance sheet and active asset management activities that led to 98.5% occupancy and 104% plus in rent recapture rates and an overall quality portfolio. Looks like they're just talking about why um, this, this REIT is doing so well. Low earnings and dividend volatility supports low share price volatility. Let's see here. Realty income, a path to continued long-term. Pro- okay, so where we are, S&P 500 company, one of the 65 companies in the elite S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats Index, top 10 global REIT, 15.3% compound annual total shareholder return since public listing in 1994. That's pretty impressive. A 15.3% return from a REIT. I mean, there are some real estate deals that you won't get that kind of return on. 4.4% compounded annual dividend growth rate since 1994 and 111 dividend increases. Wow. Okay, so where is the REIT going? They want to become a $50 billion-plus global company as measured by enterprise value. They want to consolidate the $12 trillion in global net lease addressable market. They want to become a top five global REIT, so from top 10 to top five, to average double-digit total shareholder return with minimal volatility. Sounds like they're basically already hitting that. And they want to continue treating the dividend as sacrosanct to their mission. That's really neat. There's not a whole lot of stock options that are going to give you a dividend payment. The fact that this uh, real estate investment trust has averaged 15.3% since 94, they're continuing to pay dividends, and that's clearly at the core of what they're wanting to do is pay those dividends. 
I would say that this is a pretty decent investment opportunity. So if you are interested in investing in REITs, I would definitely go check out the Realty Income REIT. Um, I guess that, I don't know, if, is Swan their trading name? Is that why they keep mentioning that? Or is, I don't, I can't, I can't tell if that's their, uh, like, abbreviation or if that's just something they keep saying about it. But there you go, Realty Income. All right, now for this week's wild card, the best segment of the week. What are we going to be talking about today? Well, not really a super fun uh, <laughs> article, that's for sure. Um, but we are going into the C world of CNBC with COVID vaccine mandates sweep across corporate America as Delta variant swoops in. I'm trying to figure out why my screen is not showing me. Okay, well, whatever. You guys don't need to see me for this last one. More than a dozen large U.S. corporations, including Walmart, Google, Tyson Foods, and United Airlines, have recently announced vaccine mandates for some or all of their workers. The U.S. reported a seven-day average of more than 108,000 new cases per day as of Sunday, up 36% from a week earlier, according to new data from Johns Hopkins University. The U.S. government may not require that everyone get COVID-19 vaccines, but large employers across corporate America are stepping into the void. More than a dozen large U.S. corporations, including Walmart, we just named all them, have recently announced vaccine mandates for some or all of their workers. With rapidly rising COVID-19 case counts as contagious, dangerous variants leading to increasing rates of severe illness and hospitalization among U.S. unvaccinated population, this is the right time to take the next step to ensure a fully vaccinated workforce. Who would be pretty interesting to see what, uh, what kind of fallout this starts to have. The U.S. reported a seven-day average of more than 108,600 new cases per day. Wow, 108,000 new cases a day. With 83% of sequenced coronavirus cases nationwide stemming from the Delta variant. Vaccinations are seen by health officials and corporate management as the safest way to get employees who have been working remotely back to the office. Though some employers now unilaterally mandate vaccines, most have limited the scope of their guidance to certain offices or specific groups of workers. Google and Facebook have mandated COVID immunizations for anyone returning to their U.S. offices. Walmart, which has 1.6 million U.S. employees, has imposed a vaccine mandate for all corporate and management staff, while store employees must wear masks in high-risk counties. Uh, let's see. A Gallup poll in 20, April of 2020 found that 70% of employees surveyed were working from home. Although I'm not a big fan of mandates, we need to see use a variety of incentives to encourage as many people as possible to practice effective infection control. I mean, look, nobody wanted to get to this point where you're having to mandate the vaccines, but that's kind of where we are you know corporations have to keep working keep making money and I means getting people back into the offices it seems united airlines said friday that all of its roughly 67,000 person u.s employees must provide proof that they are vaccinated against covid no later than october 25th becoming the country's first major airline to issue such a mandate employees risk termination if they don't comply the united said there will be exemptions for religious or medical uh, reasons which of course 
We know some of you will disagree with this decision to require the vaccine for all United employees, uh, but we have no greater responsibility to you and your colleagues than to ensure your safety when you're at work and the facts are crystal clear. Everyone is safer when everyone is vaccinated. Looks like Facebook's Vice President of People, Lori Goler, said the company of nearly 59,000 global employees will have a process in place for people who can't be vaccinated for medical or other reasons, and that it's working with experts to ensure our return to office plans prioritize everyone's health and safety. I mean, it's just, it's these big companies. I mean, the article goes on and on about how um, just all these, these corporations are starting to require it. I mean, I... You know, makes sense, I, I guess, right? Like, it's it's just kind of gotten to that point. Progressive Property Partners is saying, I wonder how it is known that new cases are, in fact, Delta variant when there are no tests for it. I have no idea. I don't really pay attention to any of that stuff um, as far as how they're actually testing it. But the data is coming out pretty clear that a lot of it is the Delta variant. I mean, in, in Tennessee, I think the data is like 99.6% of cases are now uh, or deaths, I think, are now uh, unvaccinated people from the Delta variant, which is crazy. But that's this week's wild card. You know, pay attention to COVID um, and and those, uh, I guess, vaccinations, because that will determine whether a lot of these corporations um, and even some cities are going to be getting back to it or if we're going to be shutting down again, which, I, you know, look, if we're going to be shutting down again, um, it's going to be way worse uh, than um, than it probably was the first go round, just because everybody's so fatigued. But anyway, let's leave it on a light note. Go out there, buy some real estate, make some good investments. Join us live on the live streams Mondays at 5:30 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you have any questions, feel free to jump in. Um, I, that's what these are for. These are an open forum for you to come and ask your commercial real estate questions. I have people DMing me on Instagram all the time commenting on my YouTube videos, asking questions about their deals. This is the forum for that. So if you want to jump in, you are more than welcome to ask any questions about your deals. I am happy to talk about them here. If you're listening on the podcast, don't forget to leave a rating uh, and a review for us. It's much appreciated. Helps us get the show out there to more people. And I will see you next week. Uh -huh.